Oren. We have the privilege of hearing from Oren again tonight. He's looking pretty sharp too, isn't he? Well, maybe you should turn around so everyone can just admire you, but yeah, that's right. Beautiful. <laughs> all right, we're all yours. Thanks, mate. Hi, everybody. Hi. Ah, <laughs> uh, great. So, tonight we are going to be picking back up with part two of the two-part series uh, that I started a few weeks ago on the temptations of Christ in the wilderness. And... Uh, for those that were here, just a bit of a quick uh, recap, I suppose, of uh, what we spoke about last time. Last time, we actually didn't even get to the temptations of Christ. Rather, we were looking at the period of Jesus' life before he actually uh, was baptized and then went into the wilderness for the 40 days. Now, during this period of his life, which was the first 30 years of his life, 90% of his life, a big chunk of it, we don't know much about Jesus at all. We don't get much in scriptures whatsoever, apart from his birth and then a little bit as a kid, and that's about it. But evidently, this is a very important part of Jesus' life because it gave him the strength and the tools to overcome the trials Satan put him through in the desert and then take on everything that the world threw at him after that, including being crucified on the cross. And so we also looked at the anonymous seasons in our own life as well. And so these anonymous seasons can come about from perhaps we've lost a job and we haven't yet found another one and we're in this weird limbo kind of period and we're not sure what to make with all this extra spare time that we have and not what sure to uh, make of ourselves. Maybe we've just um, got it out of a long-term relationship and trying to work out what does it look like for me to be single again? Where is my identity in just myself? Maybe you've just had a kid and all that spare time that you had to go out and be social and have fun is now all poured into this little baby and everything else, including sleep, seems to take a back seat. And so these anonymous signs, uh, these anonymous periods, we don't really enjoy too much. We don't like being not as productive as maybe we once were. However, these periods may be unapplauded, but they are definitely not unproductive. It's this time of rest, this time of recharging where God can get, build back into us and give us the tools needed to take on the period of time that's going to come next. And I think this uh, quote wrapped it up quite nicely. Today's decisions foreshadows tomorrow's challenges and reflect yesterday's choices. I like it so much, I'm going to say it again. Today's decisions foreshadow tomorrow's challenges and reflect yesterday's choices. And so tonight we're actually going to be looking at the temptations that Jesus went through, the three of them, and talking about how that also applies to our life. So I thought I'll actually start tonight with telling a story about temptation. And like uh, most of my stories that I tell, this one is about my work. I work up at the uh, Novotel, up, at, um, up in North Wollongong, and this, is, this story is going back a few years now. Um, back when I was in a different role there, and it's about someone who took something that didn't quite that didn't quite belong to him. And so it was about this time of year, moving into Christmas, and even though we are a very large commercial secular company, I'm still very proud of the fact that we have a beautiful nativity scene in the foyer every single year. However, one morning, it was about 7am, I uh, was on my way to work and I got out of the elevator, I was walking through the foyer, and there's a general manager of the hotel standing in front of the nativity scene, scratching his head. And as I walked up to him, he saw me coming, and I said good morning to him, and he said, do you see anything wrong with this nativity scene? And I had a look at it, and there was Mary and Joseph 
and there was the three wise men, because we know there were actually three, because there were three gifts, that's science. <laughs> there were three shepherds, because there were three wise men, and I think there were probably three angels as well. But then I noticed the manger was empty. Little baby Jesus was missing. And I said, oh, what's happened to Jesus? And he goes, ah, this is your job today. You need to find Jesus. <laughs> I was going to tell him I actually found him quite a few years ago, but uh, I didn't decide to go down that path. Anyway, so the first thing I do was go down to the security room to have a look at the security cameras to see if I could work out who stole little baby Jesus. We had a kidnapping on our hands. And about 3 o'clock in the morning, you can see somebody kind of stagger up to the, the, I guess, the boundary that we had in front of the activity scene. They kind of climb over it clumsily, bend down, obviously take Jesus, and they just wander off. Unfortunately, because the camera, the closest camera we have is about 30 metres away from the nativity scene, you can't actually make out who it is. It's just a little pixelated image of somebody in dark clothes, you can't see a face or anything like that, climbing over, stealing Jesus. So, okay, don't really have anything to go on, even if I was to show the police, not that I really care, <laughs> uh, there would be nothing to go off. So, I went and had a word with our executive housekeeper, because she's the one that's in charge of all the Christmas decorations, and she was really upset. Jesus was stolen. And one of the main reasons is because just the year before, our robotic Santa had his head stolen. <laughs> this was a motion-controlled Santa, and so when you walk past him, he would ring his bell and go, ho, 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 Merry Christmas. He still did that, but now he doesn't have a head. <laughs> uh, so actually, our housekeeper went to the boutique, the clothes shop, to see if she could get a spare mannequin's head to put on Jesus. The only spare mannequin they had was this one with a big chiseled jaw, <laughs> and not a be beautiful haircut, and he had this smouldering squint in his eyes. And even if you put a beard on him and a Santa's hat on him, it just looked creepy. <laughs> and I scared a few kids, and we had to get rid of Santa altogether. And so now that we've been stolen from again from our stock of Christmas decorations, she was really upset. But still, she did what she could and went to the local toy store to see if she could find a little baby toy to replace Jesus with. Um, but the only one that was probably the same scale was this kind of little Japanese cartoon kind of doll. So it had a really big head, massive eyes that took up a third of its face, no nose, and this funny little cartoon mouth. And so Jesus looked very creepy <laughs> for a few days. Um, a few days later, I actually received a phone call. I thought, you know, Jesus was long gone by this time. But I received this phone call from this elderly stuttering man. And he uh, said, um, uh, are you the manager? And I was like, Yes, I'm manager in the hotel. He goes, I, I think I have something that belongs to you. I was like, really? <laughs> and he goes, um, I've, I've got your little baby Jesus. And I was like, do you now? <laughs> he goes, yes, look, I'm, I'm so sorry. I, I was at a Christmas party at the hotel and obviously had a few too many wines. And the next thing I knew, I was waking up in my bed and I saw a little baby Jesus on the pillow next to me. <laughs> And he goes, you need to understand, this is completely out of character. I'm actually a university prof a professor at the University of Wollongong. I don't do stuff like this, ever. <laughs> I'm mortified with my actions, and it actually took me this many days to have the confidence to actually give you a call about it. I was like, okay, no harm, no foul, just bring it in, and we'll say bygones are bygones. Um, and he said, I'll be in that afternoon. And that afternoon came along, and he didn't turn up. The next day came and went. He didn't turn up. And the next few days came and nothing happened. And I thought, okay, I, I didn't, he, he didn't give me his name. It was a private number. I didn't have anything to go on. So again, alas, no baby Jesus. But then, and here's the beautiful part of the story. Christmas morning, walking through the foyer, look at the nativity scene, baby Jesus is back in the manger, right where he belongs. And the little fake Jesus is standing by the shepherds, 
staring at baby Jesus with massive eyes, being almost as creepy as smoldering Santa. And so, yeah, yay. <laughs> so this professor, I'll laugh if it was like a professor of ethics or something like that. It'll be just the icing on the cake. Never found out who he was. But this professor obviously was tempted to take something that wasn't his. And obviously he was tempted by probably having a few too many drinks uh, that led him to do something that was a bit of out of character for him as well. And so tonight, like I said, we're going to be talking about temptations and sometimes the things and the places that we find ourselves in. And when we look at these passages about the temptations of Christ, look, most of us in this crowd would know this story very well and would probably be able to work out the core message of this story as well. Jesus was tempted. We get tempted as well. What did Jesus do? He grounded himself in the Word of God, and that gave him the strength to overcome every temptation that Satan threw at him. That is not a new message for us. We all know the story. However, this year, as we behold Jesus, we look at Jesus, and we look at him closely, and the longer we look at Jesus, the more we see. And so it's my hope for you that as we look at these passages that we are probably so familiar with, that we can perhaps glean a little bit more from them and have a bit more of insight into Jesus and apply that to our own lives as well. So, let's read the passages, and this is from uh, Matthew. Okay, so Matthew 4, 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now, that's got to be probably one of the largest understatements in the Bible. I'm hungry right now, and I ate a few hours ago. For me to use the same word to describe my condition as Jesus, probably not too right there. Okay, so the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. And then the devil left him and the angels came to attend him. And so this is the passage that we're familiar with, very much so. Um, and we also go through many temptations in our life, probably on a daily basis. Sometimes these temptations can come from a place of within. And so it might not be an outside influence, but it's maybe something just within ourselves. So maybe we like to have a drink or two, and that's absolutely fine. Jesus loved a drink or two as well. That's not a sinful thing in itself. But as we know, if these few drinks become a few more and it starts impairing on other areas of our life or the people around us or um, our influence on our local um, no, workplace, um, community, whatever that might be, then perhaps we are starting to cross a line. But we try to justify it, don't we? We often try to justify the things that we think might be a bit sinful, but really it's, it's just us being us. And so in this example, we might be saying, um, well, it, I'm only doing this for a certain amount of time. So I only might be having this, uh, these drinks while I'm going through this really stressful time at work. 
Or maybe I'm just going to have a bit of a bender every now and then because I'm young and love to have a party. When I'm a bit older, I'll be more mature and won't do that so much. Or maybe we try to compare ourselves against someone who's in a worse place than us to make ourselves feel better. And we say, well, look, at least I'm not getting absolutely drunk and going home and beating my partner. Or at least I'm not throwing up out the front of the, the hotel like that person over there. And we try to make it acceptable in ourselves to tell us it's not that bad. However, a better way to approach this is, is to ask ourselves a question. What is this feeding? What is this feeding? If I continue on this road, if I keep doing this, where will it take me? And is that a place I want to be? Temptations can also come from external factors. Someone can come up to you and offer you something that you know you shouldn't take, but it's so tempting and you might want it really badly. Back many years ago, I used to, uh, when I worked on the reception desk of a hotel, I was once approached by a tall, attractive blonde who asked for my phone number. But this tall, attractive blonde, his name was Duncan, <laughs> and wasn't really my type, and so it was an easy temptation to push aside. <laughs> um, <laughs> sometimes we might be presented with an opportunity to take something that is not ours, like a baby Jesus. And that might be so great. A lot of the, the thefts that we have, majority of the thefts we find out are just people in the right place at the right time and they take advantage of the opportunity. We had our day spa at the hotel broken into just last week and you can actually see in the cameras, the person comes into the day spa, they're just standing there waiting to be served but there's no one at the front desk because the beautician is, in, um, is doing a massage or whatever it is at the time. They wait there for five minutes, obviously no one's there so they walk up to one of the shelves and just take all the stock off the shelf in the bag and they just walk out. I don't think they went there to actually do that, they probably went there to book a massage. But no one was there, the opportunity was there and away they go. We probably had a few words with the day spar about how better to secure their property after that as well. So, when we look at temptation and Jesus, we find a little bit of a paradox here because Jesus is fully God, isn't he? And to think that God can be tempted is really absurd. God created everything. Everything is his. What could we possibly have to tempt God? However, Jesus is also fully human as well, isn't he? And so I believe that while the God part of him, no, they couldn't be tempted. Yes, the human part of him might be susceptible to temptations. Probably not so much from within, but definitely from what Satan was doing externally to him. You see, Jesus came here to fulfill what we couldn't do. He came to fill in the gaps. Jesus, during Jesus' lifetime, he fulfilled 353 prophecies that we find in Scripture. Even him wandering around in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights is actually uh, a fulfilment of the 40 years that the Israelites wandered around the wilderness as well. However, unlike the Israelites, Jesus actually passed. You don't find him being bitter and upset and angry with God for the time he spent in the wilderness. You find it's a place that actually uh, ultimately makes him stronger. Uh, if you go to the next slide, this is the, uh, this is the structure of temptation. Every temptation starts and exploits a natural longing, something that we just naturally need, and that in itself isn't sinful. It then offers us a means, so a way to actually obtain this thing that we probably shouldn't have. Then we have an invitation to actually take what is not ours. And then to combat that, what does Jesus do? He anchors himself in the Word of God and makes a definite choice. If we compare Jesus to Adam and Eve, where the very first sin happened, Adam and Eve, their natural longing was to be like God. We were created in his image. They wanted to be like God. 
and that's fine. However, the means of this temptation to be like God, as far as they were told, was to eat the forbidden fruit. The invitation came from the serpent saying, you should eat this fruit. Is this what God really said? Adam and Eve did not anchor themselves in the word of God and in God's instructions, and they made the choice to disobey. However, Christ came to fulfill what Adam and Eve could not do. He came to be the perfect man that Adam was supposed to be. He came to be the second Adam. It's like a rebirth of the spiritual realm in the world. However, when we look at the lures that Satan used against Adam and Eve, and we look at the lures he used against Jesus, and the lures he uses in our lives as well, we can see he uses the same ones again and again and again. And this tells us two things. It tells us, one, Satan is predictable, but also tells us, number two, over the thousands of years that have been humans on this planet, we have never given him a reason not to be. It works again and again and again. And so let's have a look now at the first temptation, and we'll unpack it, and we'll see if we can pull a little bit more out of this as well. So firstly, there is the longing. Jesus is hungry. That is not evil. After 40 days of not eating, he would be hungry, absolutely. Then it comes into the means. And this is interesting what Satan does. Satan just doesn't tell Jesus, run into the local town and steal yourself a loaf of bread. That would just be a blatant violation of the law. Rather, he uses something much more deceiving. You see, this temptation isn't about what Jesus ate, but when Jesus ate. It's about, this is a temptation about immediate gratification. And that is an effective lure. Why should I have to wait for something if it's in my power not to? Jesus had everything inside of him he needed to actually turn the stones into bread. We see him manifest food all the time. He turns the water into wine. He feeds the 5,000. He could have easily turned those pebbles into bread rolls, easily. However, it wasn't his time. He knew this was not the right place and the right time to do it. He had to trust in God. The invitation Satan uses is also interesting. And if we look a little bit um, back at the original Greek text, uh, here, and a lot of translations say, if you are the Son of God. However, other translations use the word since, since you are the Son of God. And when translating Greek, often these words are quite interchangeable. But applying each of these to this uh, passage up here, it actually has a bit of a different spin. You see, the first one, if you are the Son of God, is about, it sounds like Satan taunting Jesus. Are you really the Son of God? Are you really who you say you are? Or are you only Jesus of Nazareth? Are you only the son of a carpenter and nothing more? However, I tend to lean towards the since interpretation because when we look at all the groups of people that Jesus meets in his ministry, there is one group of people that know without a shadow of a doubt exactly who Jesus is and they have no question about the extent of his divinity. And that's the possessed people, the, demo, the demonic spirits. They know exactly who Jesus is. They're not wondering, they're not like the disciples scratching their head and saying, oh, you might be Elijah, come back or something like that. They know he is Jesus, absolutely. And they throw themselves at his feet and they say, I know who you are, Jesus. Don't cast me out. But if you do, maybe throw me in that uh, herd of pigs over there instead. They beg for mercy. They know who he is. So Satan, I think, absolutely knew who Jesus was. So I think he probably used, since you are the son of God. Because what this alludes to is, this is like uh, provoking the ego, isn't it? It's like saying, since you are God, why should you have to suffer? If you are God, 
you don't need to starve, you don't need to be on the brink of death, you can turn these rocks into bread and eat them and save yourself. You should not have to suffer. And that is, for some of us, maybe a much more tempting lure. You see, Satan is not asking Jesus to denounce his divinity, rather he's asking Jesus to redefine it by behaving as a world would expect him. And so, for some of us, again, since might be the big lure provoking our ego, but if we're not so confident in ourselves, it might be if we need to prove ourselves to those around us. And so, what does Jesus do? He anchors himself in the Word of God. He says, man does not live on bread alone, but upon, but upon every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is a passage from Deuteronomy 8.3, which refers to when God gave the Israelites manna in the wilderness. Bread will only sustain us for a day, but the Word of God will sustain us forever. And so the choice, Jesus needed to eat, but more importantly, he truly needed to live. While food sustains us physically, God's Word sustains all of creation and anchors us in our existence. Now, the interesting thing here is, Jesus is Logos, the Word of God. Satan's playing a dangerous game here. If the Word of God were to fail, what would that mean for all of existence? Now, a few interesting points about Jesus here before we actually move on to the uh, next temptation. We don't find Jesus in denial, though, do we? Sometimes when we find ourselves in in temptations, like, no, I don't have a drinking problem, don't have a drinking problem, I'm I'm not full of lust, I'm not greedy for money, we we tell ourselves these things because we want to try and convince ourselves that is not the case. However, we don't find Jesus walking around the desert going, I'm not hungry, I'm not hungry, I'm not hungry, I'm not hungry for 40 days, do we? He knew he was hungry, but he knew he needed, the God, he needed God's word more. And this part I find quite, um, quite encouraging, because Jesus uses scripture to combat Satan, doesn't he? However, he doesn't use a lot of scripture. He doesn't throw a whole book of Deuteronomy at Satan. He only uses a few verses. That tells us how potent the word of God is. And that's really good for me, because even though I'm studying, um, studying scripture, I'm doing um, lots of study of theology at the moment, I really struggle to remember references. I always have to write them down. I could write a whole paper on a single verse and then forget what it was the next week after I've handed it in. My brain just doesn't retain that kind of information. So to know I don't need to recite passages and passages to keep myself grounded in the Word of God, just a few words, that for me is a really good thing. Jesus showed amazing amount of self-control and that is something that only grows in the anonymous season. God graciously grants us the opportunity to wrestle with our appetites before others' lives are at stake. He allows us to struggle with our passions privately before they embarrass embarrass us publicly. And so these anonymous seasons that we struggle so much with, we actually need to see it as a gift of God where we can obtain the tools we need to actually combat what's to come down the track. Uh, Temptation number two. Okay. Jesus came to save the world, to love people, to heal them inside and out. And you can imagine the anguish Jesus must have felt as he was growing into adulthood and realising the full potential, the power of God with inside of him, knowing he had the power to heal, but it was not yet his time. Imagine Jesus as a 20-something-year-old, feeling the power of God inside of him, walking past lepers in the streets, or people who uh, have limbs missing, or a widow who's just lost her eldest boy, and knowing he's got the power to actually do something about it, but it's not yet his time. This is a temptation about power. You see, what, G, uh, what Satan does is he takes Jesus to the holy city. The holy city is Jerusalem, and this is a hub of human activity of the ancient world. 
And so not only were there Jews there, there was also um, Romans who were occupying the place at the time, there were Greeks, uh, there were people from all nations all over the world converging in this one busy, bustling city. Jesus was on the top, top highest place of the temple and Satan says, jump. Satan gets, tries to be a bit wise here and says, um, and actually quotes some scripture himself and says, if you jump, angels will catch you because that's what it says in the Bible. Now, let's just think for a moment. What would have happened if Jesus did jump? I think that God probably would have done somewhat of what Satan said. He probably would have sent angels to prevent Jesus from dying and lower him safely to the ground. And can you imagine what kind of spectacle that would have been in the busiest city of the time? Jesus descending from high, surrounded by angels in full glory, coming down to rest in front of the temple. Every single person, thousands of people who were there witnessing it, would have had no choice but to bow down in worship. They would have made him king of the world right there and right then. That sounds like a good thing. That's what he came to do, isn't it? However, that was not what Jesus chose to do. You see, here's the thing. Throughout human history, and it still goes on today, there's always been some kind of superpower, a nation that rises up and beats all the other nations into submission. And they cart the men off as slaves and anyone who stands against this power is killed. If Jesus came to earth with another show of force, another display of military might, whether it be holy or natural, it would have just been another regime, just another pattern repeating itself of people being forced to submit to his greater power. No, Jesus couldn't do that. He couldn't come to earth like that. He had to come with the attitude of nonviolence. He had to come and show a way of love, not of violence, not of anger, not of aggression. He had to show there was a better way. And when we understand this about Jesus' ministry, or when we understand this about the plan, we can see other passages of Scripture in a different light. And so one of them is the passage of the rich young ruler. This one always used to confuse me, because it looks like this person who's he's rich, he's well-off, he's very influential as well, he's a ruler, comes to Jesus and basically says, I want to follow you. And it looks like Jesus just turns him away. This kind of guy is the person I would want to have become a Christian. Absolutely. Imagine... Uh, Mark Zuckerberg coming up to you and go, the founder of Facebook and saying, hey, I want to become a Christian. You'd be like, awesome, how good would this be? Imagine the good Facebook could do in the world if it was based on godly morals. Imagine what the billions of dollars he has could do around the world, feeding people, building shelters for people. So much good could be done for this. You would want to do it whatever you could to get this guy into your church and teach him about God and have that play out. But what does Jesus do to the rich young ruler? He says, sell your possessions and come follow me. And the rich young ruler walks away and says, because he can't do that. However, if we look at this in, on the angle of nonviolence, Jesus doesn't even encroach on this man's free will. It's completely up to him whether he follows Jesus or not. What does Jesus do when he's arrested by the soldiers in the Garden of Gethsemane? Um, Peter pulls out his sword and chops some guy's ear off. Jesus pops back on and tells Peter, put your sword away. We're not going to do it like that. We're not going to fight like this. We're going to win the war, but it's going to be through love, not through violence. Put away your sword, Peter. So every step of the way, all the way up to his death, Jesus showed this attitude of nonviolence and love for the world. The invitation Satan uses in Temptation 2 is from Psalms 91, 11, and 12. Uh, this might be the one that Alira quoted this morning. Yeah, 
Um, and this, but this one it really is about God protecting the righteousness from dangers, not so much about putting God to the test and seeing if he will do what the scriptures say he will do. Again, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy, he loves that book, to anchor himself, and then again makes a choice. You see, Jesus was secure in himself. He could not be manipulated. The crowds could not control Jesus through the power of their emotions or the volumes of their voices. In his identity, Jesus was unshakable. Jesus had to wait for God's right time, and he did this without bitterness. He didn't leave the wilderness with resentment in his heart, nor did he try to make up for lost time when, when he was finally revealed. He knew God's, per, God's timing was perfect and never late. You see, during the anonymous time in Jesus' life, God wasn't saying to Jesus, no. He was simply saying, not yet. And that, I think, is relevant to a lot of us as well. There is so much that rests on our ability of whether or not we can yield to God's not yet. And finally, one more point about this temptation. Jesus didn't jump physically, but he didn't jump mentally either. And by that I mean we don't find Jesus later thinking about, oh, how good would it be if I was just able to be the ruler of the world? How good would it be if I didn't have to go to the cross and everyone just bowed down in front of me as well? We don't find him dreaming about that. It's okay to have dreams. It's okay to have ambitions. That's absolutely fine. However, if our dreaming of what we want leads us to resent what we do have, then there's something wrong there. If I'm dreaming about a beautiful, amazing house with a pool in the back and a yard for the kids to run around in, and then I look at the place I live in and go, this place is just crap, then there's something wrong with that. If our dreaming uh, leads us to feel resentment about our, our job, our partners, our kids maybe, then there's something wrong with that as well. You see, we often think our minds are just contained environments. It doesn't really matter what I think. It's what I do. That's what really counts. But our minds are actually controlling environments. What we think up here will dictate our actions that we do in the world. And so we need to make sure we keep our minds in check with God too. And finally, temptation number three. So this longing is another one about power. But, uh, but opposed to the previous one, which is about public acclaim, this temptation is only between Jesus and Satan. They are in a quiet place. Satan was offering Jesus everything for his submission, and no one, at least on earth, would know about it. He offered Jesus all the world's political, human, and economic resources. That sounds like a lot of power to have. But imagine what you could do. If you were the supreme ruler of the world, imagine what you could do. You could eradicate hunger. Half the world is dying of starvation, while the other half is dying of obesity. There's something wrong with that. You could end child prostitution. You could help the homeless. You could protect the helpless. You could give jobs to the unemployed. You could offer justice to the oppressed. You could channel money to truly worthy causes. You could ensure the elderly were never abandoned. You could prosecute drug traffickers, create the best environments for those with special needs. You could offer a university education for every single person who desired one. You could protect our natural resources. You could end wars before they even began. There is so much good you could do if, uh, and, and it sounds like a great temptation that Satan was offering Jesus. You could do all of this. All Jesus had to do was bow down to Satan. But this is what Satan was actually saying. Satan was offering Jesus the world without needing to go to the cross. He was offering a loophole for Jesus, a way to get the world without this suffering that we know Jesus was 
quite stressed about. It was a shortcut. You see, Satan, he is the temporary ruler of the world. And if you actually read the temptations of Christ in Luke, it actually goes into a little bit more detail. This part, it says, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, which is interesting because Satan's here acknowledging it wasn't his to begin with, but it is now given to him. And I can give it to anybody I want to. And so, in essence, Satan is saying to Jesus, he's wanting him to trade Jesus' eternal rule for a visible one. And this is something that Satan asks each and every one of us every day, doesn't he? Turn your back on God, do what the world wants. Don't be a laughingstock. People might tease you, people might think you're weird because you're a Christian. Turn your back on God. Why do that? Do what everyone would expect you to do. Do what the world would expect you to do. Be normal for a change. Why do you have to be some weird Spiro? They're the kind of voices that come at us. However, here's the problem with what Satan was saying. Because you can only receive authority from someone who has more authority than you. Satan is basically saying, I will give you what used to be yours if you give me what has never been mine. All you have to do is trade places with me. If you, you can become the ruler of the world if I can become your God. Fortunately, Jesus didn't bow down to Satan. Um, and perhaps Satan was hoping that Jesus' time in the desert would have maybe weakened his mind and made him think that all this suffering wasn't actually worth it. Because it is when we forget who we are that we are most tempted to bow down. So we never can never forget who we are. We must remind ourselves and each other who we are every single day. And so who are we? We are the children of God. We are created in his image. We are loved. We are adored. We are the invited guests to the banquet table. We are known to him, every single one of us. We can never forget who we are. There is strength in that. The anchor Jesus uses, again, he quotes Deuteronomy, and the choice he makes is not to diverge from his path. You see, there's another time when someone approaches Jesus and, asks him, and offers him a shortcut, and it's actually Peter this time. If you go to the next slide, please. This is a few chapters on uh, in Matthew. From that time, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that, they must, and that he must be killed on the third day and be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned to, and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. I've often read this passage and thought, Jesus has been a bit harsh to Peter. Peter was just trying to help him out. This is his master. He doesn't want him to die. And Jesus calls him Satan. That's a big accusation. But you can imagine Jesus hearing these words, this offer of a way to take the world without having to go to the cross. That reeked of the same stench of Satan's words that he heard in the wilderness as well. And Jesus had to make that definite choice right there, right then, not play with it, not toy with it, not um and ah, oh, is there any grey area, any leeway, I can maybe take a bit of that. He had to make that choice, slice it right down the middle and say, no, we are not doing this, get behind me. You see, Jesus had an internal perspective. And this is something that you can only cultivate in those anonymous seasons that we go through. When we're in the spotlight, when we're... Uh, all systems are going and we're being productive and running around, we often don't have the time to sit and recharge 
and strengthen ourselves from the inside. This has to come during these anonymous seasons. They are a gift. Just a few more points before I finish up. The word desert in Greek, emaios, is actually the same word used when they're describing the lonely and isolated places Jesus would retreat to. Jesus befriended the wilderness. It was part of him. It wasn't, I got through these 40 days of the wilderness, I'm in my ministry now, my ministry's only going for three years before I die, I need to get as much work as I can done now. No, he goes back to the wilderness again and again and again. He gets away from the crowds and goes away to recharge, restore, spend time with God. You see, Jesus' authority was a submission-based authority. It didn't flow from his possessions, it didn't flow from his position, but from a place of submission. It came from submission to his Father's will and his word. You see, position and submission can be a very powerful duo if done right. Publicly, strong leaders stand before us and they lead, but privately they kneel before God and learn. Jesus had unmodified obedience. He never tried to embellish it, dilute it, tailor it or customise it. He simply obeyed God every step of the way, even if it wasn't his will alone. And this gives us a very good perspective and helps us stand our ground those times of temptation. Because what every single one of us will do is when we stand before God, when our time comes and we stand before God, he's not going to ask us, in our lives, were we accurately estimated? Were you appropriately recognised? He won't ask us if we were sufficiently applauded. Rather, he'll ask us, did you love me? Did you move others towards me in love? Did you obey me? Did you submit yourself to my will and my word? Did you live for what I died for? And the pretest to these questions can only be ones that we... We don't take the pretest of these questions when we are on centre stage, we take them during these anonymous periods, these hidden places, these isolated places of our lives. Because what we all want is in the end to go to, when we go to heaven and see God, is him to smile and say, well done. The only true temptation in our spiritual life is the temptation to choose against God. That's what it all boils down to. But how good is it that we have a God that understands our temptations inside and out and is our saviour, and is the one that went before us and did not fail any of these tests that we seem to fail again and again and again. How good is that? Cool. Okay, let me just finish with a word of prayer, and then we can go grab the kitties. God, thank you so much that you were able to do what we have not been able to do. You have filled every gap, every void we have left, every place we have fallen short, Lord. You have gone ahead of us, and fulfilled it, Lord. Thank you, God, that in you we are strong. In you we find our strength. In you we find our sure footing, Lord. And when we can't go on any further, Lord, you will continue on for us. Thank you, Lord, that you understand us better than we understand ourselves and help us to have the wisdom and the courage to continue to fall back on you when we feel like our temptations are overwhelming us. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Cool. So have a great afternoon guys enjoy the rest of the daylight we'll see you next time